This episode is sponsored by AES. The AES Corporation is a Fortune 500 global power company accelerating the future of energy. Together with their many stakeholders, they're improving lives by delivering greener, smarter energy solutions the world needs. To learn more, visit AES.com. And this episode is also sponsored by Amazon Web Services. AWS is committed to sustainability. It's good for the planet, business, and communities. Learn more about AWS sustainability goals at aws.bpc.digital forward slash sustainability. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, how not to snail scale climate tech. What's your company's climate fingerprint? What to expect from a sustainability career in Europe? And a sea change for carbon capture. The tide is turning this week on 350. It's February 3rd, 2023. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Always so glad to have you with us. And joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, is uh, my favorite uh, groundhog prognosticator. I don't know. Are you? Heather Clancy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Uh, Do you know that I have not seen that movie? Really? That, that's wow. like, yeah, I know. I, it I'm is. such, I, like, I have these weird little quirks in my back cultural background. That being like, I've never I seen some recommend. of these movies. I've never seen The Godfather. Actually, yeah. I did see The Godfather, but I was like, my parents were at the drive-in, and I was asleep in the back. So, <laughs> I would <laughs> recommend that you see Groundhog Day. It is just yeah. a classic. It is so good. I've mm. seen it multiple times not always front to back sometimes just you know dialing for dollars on the tube and that comes up middle somewhere but it's great great movie. yeah Yeah. well i have no idea what our groundhog people are you know the the groundhog has not been that that correct here recently um like this week we've had zero degrees and 55 degrees like literally within the span of a couple days so it's just not i don't know I just watch my flowers. <laughs> I know my tool, my daffodils are trying to come up. <laughs> that's that's all I know. <laughs> it's almost as if something is wrong with the climate. I don't really get it, but uh, uh, yeah. How, well, how are you doing? How's uh, the uh, weather out there? I mean, I know it was deluge for such. So oh long, no, that's but... that's you know we're we we went right from there back to our regularly scheduled drought. Oh um, boy. So we're no, it was great. We had it's it's we have. Uh, it's no longer a water emergency here in California, certainly not in the Bay Area, but most of the state. And um, and we're, um, I, you know, it's, when it rains so much, it was, it was great with water. But there's always something about, you know, like, allergy season is going to be horrible this year because of all the rain. Or allergy season is going to be horrible this year because there wasn't much rain. Uh, so who knows where that's going to go. But I, my, my hunch is that it's going to be worse than better. So... Nothing to sneeze at, but you know what else is nothing to sneeze at? The Week in Review. And 
I'm going to start here with a piece written by a very good friend of mine for over 30 years, uh, Rob Shelton, um, who is uh, uh, has been talking and working in the area of sustainability and innovation, innovation primarily. Also, but I met him in the early 90s when he was doing things around sustainability. He sort of circled back to that after really working at the space of how companies innovate. What is the process of innovate, innovation? Um, and this came, uh, this article called Don't Snail Scale Climate Tech came from a lunch Robin I had where he was just talking about, you know, we were t- I was talking about uh, Verge and, and the great climate tech work that you're doing, Heather, uh, and and where we're headed as a company. And he was talking about the fact that, you know, scaling is the, is used to be money was the big gating factor or even pilots, you know, customers, early customers, but how do you scale? And most startups don't start up with a plan for scaling and it becomes incremental. It takes time and eventually they either get there or they don't. Um, but he's talking about a plan for how scaling works. And it's a, he, he created uh, some decade or so ago, a acronym FIRE um, for uh, fit ingredients, uh, recipe and execution. And you'll have to read his piece to get into what that's all about. But um, I found this really one of the parts of innovation and climate tech that we haven't really talked about, right? Heather, what do you think? I think it's another, yeah, I think part of the point of his story was we need these companies to scale quickly. Like climate tech, we're all talking about how excited we are about climate tech startups, climate tech entrepreneurship, and that we need these startups to scale even more quickly than the norm, if you will, like than your average startup um, that's working outside of climate. But we don't usually spend time to to mentor to 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 talk to the the leaders of these companies about their business model to help them do the regional kind of exploration understand the regions that they're going into and so the, you know this this for me was one of those stories like an aha story of like oh yes like this is another reason why um, i'm personally a big um, advocate of the corporate venture capital funds and because of the 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 sort of institutional knowledge they can bring to their portfolio companies about what it takes to get to get into a market to ps hire people to hire people and then integrate them into your culture to build up your supply chain all of these things that are that are so um you know not not the thing that a, an innovator or an entrepreneur would think about first but are so vitally important so like the entrepreneurs out there listening to this, you need your business person, <laughs> you need your biz dev like counterpart, and you need them to be acting even more quickly than um, than has been the norm. So, like for me, that this was a I love the story because of just that revelation, but also like it, the the fire thing is very specific about you know the the areas that require attention, and it you know he does he goes into a little bit of detail. But it, it definitely is a great grounding for um, where where entrepreneurs and founders should seek mentorship. You know, like these are the areas where you should go find outside advisors, mentors, people that can help you do these things. So I, I did really very much appreciate this. But the main takeaway for me on this, Heather, is that uh, scaling is a process that you need to understand. And in the same way that um, Robert wrote a book, uh, I don't know, a decade or so ago called Making Innovation Work. And it, it, the thesis was basically is, is, is what you innovate, did, I mean, how you innovate 
determines what you innovate, or maybe it's both both uh, ways. But that that innovation is not just a you know rabbit out of a hat or a light bulb going on or something. There's a whole process that companies use to foster and support innovation, and in the same way with scaling, that scaling is not just something that happens if you're lucky and you keep doing your you know one foot in front of the other. You plan for that, and there's a process to stoke that. And I think that's for me the big takeaway. But let, let's switch over to a piece you wrote, Heather, about uh, uh, ocean-based carbon capture and then capturing the carbon back from the ocean. <laughs> wow, that's a mouthful, isn't it, the way you're talking about it? But yes, um, carbon capture. So this is an area that is is pu- bubbling up, if you will, for uh, the climate tech arena this year. Um, right now, as we know, most of the approaches that are being discussed with respect to carbon capture or decarbonization, uh, focus on land use, like so soil and regenerative agriculture, um, forestation, you know, afforestation, deforestation, I mean, reforestation, whatever you want to want to say, um, or some of these more engineered approaches like direct air capture. Th- there is a, a, a whole school of startups, though, that, now that are focused on uh, using the ocean. And there's a, um, a great World Resources Institute piece that I I um, link to in this in my my newsletter essay this week, which is the, what you're referring to, that talks about these different approaches. Um, so there's electrochemical re- removal. There's ways that you can address the alkalinity of the ocean. There's things like artificial downwelling, where you're pushing the the water from the surface down into the to the um, the deep ocean to help sequester carbon nutrient fertilization, artificial upwelling. I mean, there's all of these different areas that are being explored. Um, and just for, you know, sort of the backdrop here is that the ocean is already sort of this major unsung hero in terms of the, the way that it absorbs carbon dioxide right now. It, it, it takes up about 30% of it, which is one of the reasons we're seeing things like acidification and so forth. And so there's like as I mentioned, the school of entrepreneurs that are looking at ways of of how to address this. Um, and I specifically pointed to Captura this week. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting about them, they had a you know twelve million in Series A financing. Okay, that's interesting. But even more interesting is that the former CEO of uh, the direct air capture company, um, uh, Carbon Engineering, is the one that uh, is is the CEO of the company, you know, he's, he's gone from this direct air capture company to this C, C capture company. And, um, he's behind it. There's also money from the frontier climate fund and, uh, uh, the DOE that's going into this company. And they're just one of, of a number of companies that is addressing the, uh, the possibilities here. So what was really fascinating here is something that I'd never thought about. So just breaking it down a little bit, uh, as you said, about a third of the, or thirty percent of the of, of the atmospheric carbon dioxide is sequestered in oceans. But when carbon dioxide mi- mixes and dissolves in seawater, the water becomes more acidic, and the ocean is immense and can handle that. But at some point, there is an ac- acidification problem, as you as you as you noted. So you're talking about technologies that extract the CO2 from the ocean, which does two things. One, it affects the, it reduces the acidification, but it also makes room for more natural uh, yes. carbon capture by the ocean. 
And exactly. then that carbon that was captured, I suppose, gets sequestered, pumped into the ground or somehow, uh, uh, you know, sequestered. Um, or used as a feedstock. Or used as a feedstock. biofuel yeah. Yeah. Or, or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, my, I, I love the concept. It just, I, I, like I said, I'd never thought of this. I have to say, I do get a little skeptical when we talk about these. It's not quite geoengineering, but in a way it, it, it yeah. sort of is. It's that the scale of- All carbon capture is. Yeah. But I mean- when you know it, it's it's it just recalls that 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 old glib you know thing that nature baths last that trying to re rewire nature that we're going to take the carbon you've sequestered naturally and we're going to take it out and make room for more and then do something with that good luck i mean i hope it works but but i also yeah. was struck in your piece by as you said you know these six different flavors of of ocean mm-hmm. of carbon capture and i think there's there's just a lot of action going on in the in the climate climate tech space on this, but anyway, what were you going to say? Yeah, I was just going to say that I think the ones we've you, you, you know many people on this podcast have probably heard of Running Tide, which is the company that's trying to basically grow kelp and then like harvest it and then float it, you know, drop it to the ocean floor. Um, some of the other companies that I've talked to are talking about using the sort of existing biological pump of the ocean to take the water and to kind of cycle it up and down, like. The surface is where most of the carbon dioxide is. And then, you know, how does it get down to the ocean floor? How do you bring up the non, you know, the the water from the ocean, the deep water, if you will, to to the surface again to, to start that process? And yeah, I think I think one of the um one of the dangers here is that we don't there's so many things we don't know about the ocean, um, and that we really need to start capturing more data on um and you know that's that's actually one of the propositions of this company called Ocean Based Climate Solutions, or another one that I mentioned. Um, they're they're really um, focused on on capturing the data about this and and trying to um, provide sort of up to the minute readings on how this is affecting the the ecosystems and and making sure that there there isn't an um, something that tips over the wrong way. So yeah, tread lightly, um, but definitely a space that is becoming way more active. Interesting stuff. Well, I'd love for you to to give me a little of the backstory on this third piece we're going to talk about now, which is uh, headlined, What to Expect from a Sustainability Career in Europe. Uh, and, the, and the tag uh, line is, uh, Young Americans are flocking to Europe for a green career. How do sustainability careers in Europe differ? And this was written by Antoine Poncaré, if I'm saying that right, and I'm probably not, who's vice president of the Climate School, which is a whole other story, a great organization uh, over in London. Uh, but talk, how did this story come about? What, what's going on here? So I actually would give credit to uh, Jesse Klein, who um, runs our higher learning column. She goes out and solicits uh, uh, essays, if you will, from people in the field, and the piece here is that we, we, we are talking about um, and exploring Europe more, as, as you've alluded to in past podcasts. We now have our Green Biz Executive Network Europe, um, which had just had a great gathering. Um, and we're, we're jar- trying to understand the, the great um, possibilities and the great programs that are going on in Europe. And this piece, um, this individual uh, wanted to help showcase the differences um that that a sustainability professional in europe could you know like if you're coming if you're a transplant if you decide to become an expat and go to europe for part of your career what you can expect there and i thought 
Um, this is a great piece because, I mean, there's just so many things that are like, I was, I read it and I was like, oh yeah, that's true. Oh my goodness. Yes, you're right. But it definitely would affect the strategy. And I'll just give you one, um, one example. And I'm not going to use the first one because that one to me was so obvious. The first one is climate change is not a political opinion, <laughs> you know, which it apparently I love is that. here. I, love I know. That. I love that. I was like, in yeah. Europe, he's talking about um, it. It's not a political Exactly. Yeah. It, in Europe, it is not. Um, people, it's, it's fact. People don't, it's not debated. Um, but one of the things I thought was super interesting was the um, point, the second point that the author made, our relationship to individual freedom is different, which definitely um, is true. Um, and one example, one great example that he provided was the the recent decision in France to limit, um, uh, to basically say that you you can't, you can't travel on train on planes anymore. No, no more domestic flights that are less than two and a half hours if a train alternative is available. Within France. Within France. Yeah. Within France. Yes. Uh, I'll point that out. Um, and, and he notes that the public opinion opposition was close to non-existent. Hmm. I can't even imagine what that would create here yeah. in the it United States. It would be hysteria. To, it would be hysteria and yeah. you're taking away my hamburger. I mean, yeah. it would just be just really, or my gas stove. I yeah, mean, it would exactly. be that kind of hysteria. Um, and, but, but it is something that as a strategist, you need to understand when you're, um, when you're taking on a role in a different country. I mean, it just, it, it, yeah, I have so many more opinions about this, but I'll let you talk. No, I, I think that, I think it's great. And, and as you said, one of the, the best pieces of this piece is just to, you know, give the perspective to Americans about what it's like yeah. in Europe and, and that alone, whether you have a job or looking for a job or anything in Europe or not, if you have any interest or relationship with, with that continent, I think this is a great piece that, uh, helps uh, us Yankees understand a little bit more about how life is different, as we used to say, over there. Hundreds of digital pages are dedicated each year to corporate CSR or sustainability reports. Disclosures about GHG emissions, waste management, and water consumption are table stakes in these manifestos. But consumer products company Seventh Generation started a new dialogue last fall with the publication of its first climate fingerprints report. Joining me to chat about how Seventh Generation hopes to shift the conversation is Ashley Orgain, the company's chief impact officer. Hey, Ashley, thanks for joining us. Hey, Heather, great to be here. Great to have you. And I have to start with a definition. Let's define this thing. What is a climate fingerprint and why is it important for your strategy? I'm kind of curious who suggested that you go there, if you will, um, and where did you look for buy-in? So give us the back the backstory on this. The climate fingerprint is a new approach to carbon accounting that expands the boundaries of emissions to include a business's emissions associated with your cash and your investments in addition to looking at the climate performance of your service providers. So last year, seventh generation, understanding that we funnel millions of dollars every year into ancillary services that support our business operations from investments to creative agencies to our insurance, we wanted to take a deeper look at what are the associated emissions of these services that can be attributed to seventh generation. And in, in understanding those, what would we end up doing about it? 
So, so thinking about how we actually arrived at this approach, it was actually at the beginning of our process to put together what our sustainability report would be for the year. And as we have for two decades, we've committed to radical transparency and setting standards for what it means for a company to disclose their impacts. And we honestly were looking at the landscape and seeing that there were reports being published by leaders like As You Sow or climate commitments reporters. And they were looking at the fact that lots of companies had stepped up and made progress against their sustainability commitments and started disclosing against their emissions. But a lot of the strategies behind them weren't actually leading them towards the targets they were setting. That there was still a lot of disclosure that needed to be done, not only on the impacts, but on, on the strategies themselves. And as a company that's always committed to pushing the envelope and really kind of priding ourselves as, as a standard setter, we thought that this was an opportunity to do something different. And so we started looking at what was it that advocates were calling for? What was it that they were going to be demanding in the future that we should start instituting now to make sure that we are ahead of the curve? And what they were calling for was businesses to expand the lens, to widen the view of what they were not only um, reporting against, but what they were acting on. And for that, for us, it was you know, starting to think about what are the emissions associated with our investments, our cash, in addition to what are the emissions associated with some of our service providers. Yeah, so I'd like to go into some of those areas in more detail in a moment, but I'm just curious before we do that, what criteria do you use to evaluate these things and how were those developed, right? These are very different sorts of um, examinations. Uh, so I'm just curious, like, could you could you say how you how you look at a couple of these different relationships? Yeah, I mean, a lot like much of the work that we do at Seven Generation, we look outside for inspiration and information from our partners. And so we actually drew inspiration from the Climate Fingerprints Report from thought leaders like Bill McKibben, from organizations like Topo, and a recent report that was done, the, the Bankroll Climate Report, and what we understood was that they were starting to look at financed emissions and encouraging companies to look at what it is associated with their cash and their investments that's that's contributing to the climate crisis. So we used methodology that those organizations and thought leaders had put together. In addition, longtime partners, series, um, and organizations like B-Lab and how that they look at companies that are leading on climate or acting on climate. So we thought that transparency was incredibly important. We wanted to look at our service providers and profile them against how transparent are they, first of all, about their climate impacts? Um, and then are they disclosing that to the companies that they work with or their stakeholders? In addition, we wanted to look at integration into the business. So any uh, company that might have identified their carbon footprint are they doing anything about it? Do they have a plan? And then we wanted to look at kind of um, the, the commitments, you know, so do they have a plan and are they making those commitments and are they making them publicly available? So it was a set of quantitative criteria that came up from a methodology from partners that are working on finance submissions, and then a set of qualitative career criteria that really was informed by partners that we've been working with in the sustainability space for over a decade. So I like following the money. That's generally what journalists do. So let's start with your analysis of banking and financial services relationships. I'm curious what you found and sort of where where will you go with that work? 
So what was difficult about following the money for our financial services relationships is a lot of it is outside of our control. So I think your audience might know that seventh generation was acquired by Unilever back in 2017. And so a lot of those business services, we don't actually make the decisions against. So what we found actually was that we needed to partner much more closely on a subject area and a topic that we hadn't yet with, with our parent company and really kind of roll up our sleeves to try and get under and understand our contribution as a part of their larger contribution. And so it was important for us to look at this because the role that 7th Gen has always played in, in this acquisition is to be kind of the innovator, you know, the, 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 the nimble, you know, brand within a larger portfolio um, that, that can push the bigger parent company forward. We benefit from scale from being a part of Unilever and they benefit from us pushing the envelope. And so what we found was our contribution to Unilever was significant to, to seventh generation that it is actually equivalent to our number one ingredient, palm kernel oil, which we have a very robust strategy against, which meant that if we've got a strategy against one of our key ingredients, we now have to have a strategy against something that is as significant, which is our finance emissions. Wow. So how will that change over the course of the year? Like, what, what are you going to do with that information? So I think it's it's going to be probably, it, it it's going to be the most complicated and challenging part of fingerprints, I would say, is, is addressing our financed emissions. And that's because we don't have direct control. So I would say we're probably going to do three things. At least this is what we've talked about internally so far. Number one is we're gonna continue to support the campaigners that are out there elevating this as an issue and area of importance for companies to look at. So right now they're asking companies to start to address this. Very soon they're gonna be demanding it. And so our role really is to help lift that up to, to essentially pilot what we think companies can do and you know, to, to give them a platform these campaigners to continue to push and encourage businesses. Um, I think we'll also look for some quick wins. So what we do control is where um, the banking of our foundation exists. So we have a seventh generation foundation. That's something that we'll be able to pivot this, this first half of this year pretty quickly to a bank that's aligned with our values and is not doing business with the fossil fuel industry. And then third, we'll start to engage our parent company. I mean, we, we as, I, as I have shared, you know, are in the portfolio as the innovator, as the one that should be pushing the envelope on where our parent company can go. And they're gonna be you know, rolling up their sleeves and working on their climate action plan in 2024. And we're looking forward to being at the table and part of that conversation. Okay. You mentioned your foundation. So I want to go to philanthropy next, because that was another area you called out. How will this change your philanthropic relationships? So our philanthropic relationships have actually started to uh, pivot just this last year. So if we think of fingerprints as really trying to disentangle our business from the fossil fuel industry by understanding how all of these associated emissions of service providers or where we bank or where we invest are 
tied to the fossil fuel industry, we have to think about that with our philanthropy as well. And so for our philanthropy, what we have been understanding by working with a number of grantees is that there are a handful of frontline leaders and organizations that are actually curbing the expansion of the fossil fuel industry, that the power of those those, uh, frontline leaders is keeping more dirty fuel in the ground than associated emissions from the, the US in one calendar year. And so we are pivoting our approach to fund dollars to those organizations so they can do the good work of keeping fossil fuels in the ground while we're doing the work of trying to disentangle the rest of our business from fossil fuels. That's great, that's great. Now you mentioned the word campaign earlier. So that brings me to another area. Uh, marketing and creative services were included in, in this. So I'm curious what, what prompted you to look at that and how big of a, an impact can that area really have? So marketing and creative services is another area that, that when we look at to some of our nonprofit partners and thought leaders that they've identified actually is something that businesses need to be considering when they're contracting work for this area. And they need to be considering it because quite often companies can be supporting a green business and, and the campaigns and marketing that they do, while on the other side of the ledger, continuing to hold a client list that includes fossil fuel companies. And it was actually the UN Secretary General who pointed this out last year at, at one of the UN meetings, talking about the importance of PR agencies and advertisers working against how they're working against um, addressing the climate crisis. And so we don't want to be associated with that. And it's important for us to understand our business partners and their association with. With, with businesses that are continuing to proliferate the climate crisis. Advocacy comes in many forms, including the way that a company acts in the political sphere, in the political you know, environment and, and in that circle. So what's the advocacy agenda? Like how, again, how does that pertain in the climate fingerprint? I'm really proud of our advocacy agenda. We've continued to um, work this year with an organization that we've been partnering with for the last several. Um, they're an organization called New York Renews, and they're working on the most progressive climate policy in the country, the Climate Justice and um, Jobs Act. So our agenda will be bringing our business voice to the legislature and actually making the business case for why action on climate is critical. And we're gonna be working on building a coalition, bringing other business voices to the table. On the other side of the coin, we're gonna be bringing our story to consumers. What we know is that we speak to a unique audience, an audience that a lot of our nonprofit partners actually don't access. And so what we can do is we can bring a story. We can can educate our consumers. We can inspire them with stories of our, organ, our nonprofit partners that are doing good work on the ground and encourage them to act and to join us. One final question I'd like to explore with you. This is obviously Climate Fingerprints 1.0. So, uh, you know, what will the report look like in the future? What other areas do you think deserve attention and how can we expect you and the seventh generation team to address them this year? 
So this was year one. That's right. And we learned a lot. And I think what we need to do now is act on our learnings. And what we look forward to doing is, is disclosing the progress that we've made. But I think it's going to take some time. I think there are certain um, aspects that we'll be able to move on sooner than others. Um, what we're really looking for is in this setting of a standard for for climate disclosure and climate action is for other companies to join us. And so what we're planning on this year is starting a coalition. We've been very successful on moving issues and driving systems change by bringing other businesses together. So we're really looking forward to starting a coalition of other businesses, progressive businesses that want to widen their lens and, and start looking at ancillary impacts of, um, of their business on the climate crisis. So that will be this year. And um, I encourage all those listening to this podcast to please reach out and join us in that effort. I love calls to action. Thank you, Ashley, for joining us here on the podcast today. Thanks, Heather. Great to be here. You just heard from Ashley Orgain, the Chief Impact Officer of 7th Generation. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to learn more about the organization's stories and events we've mentioning this week. And while you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. We keep adding new ones and they're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We welcome your comments, your questions, your tips, whatever you got, hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. This episode is sponsored by AES. The AES Corporation is a Fortune 500 global power company accelerating the future of energy. Together with their many stakeholders, they're improving lives by delivering greener, smarter energy solutions the world needs. To learn more, visit AES.com. And this episode is also sponsored by Amazon Web Services, where success and scale bring broad responsibility and big companies have a bigger obligation to protect the planet. Learn more at aws.bpc.digital forward slash sustainability.